Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features a panel discussion about 1939, science fiction's boom year. Participating are Mike Chomko, Ed Hulse, and Barry Trailer. The talk was recorded on Friday, August 8th, 2014, at Pulp Fest 2014 in Columbus, Ohio. Here is Mike. A review of tonight's pro- there it goes. Review yeah. of tonight's programming. We're going to start with a, an overview of science fiction's boom year of 1939. Hopefully with Garen Roberts, but if not, we have Barry Trailer to my right and Ed Holst down at the end. Uh, and I'm Mike Chumko. Uh, Eight o'clock. Ed is going to do an overview of startling stories. Uh, it'll be uh, it'll feature all the covers over there. Mike Crotu is uh, going to do. Uh, a uh, presentation on Philip Jose Farmer's early science fiction uh, in digests and art. That's right, art. I'm sorry, art. Yeah, art, art was scheduled for that as well. Uh, his early science fiction in the pulps and digests. Chris Cobb's on at nine, pulp premiums and promotions. Uh, that's the second part of something we started last year. 9.30, 80 Years of Terror, The Weird Menace Pulps. Ed, that's a Walker, Garen, and you, I think. Yep. Uh, 10.30, Golden Year of Astounding Stories. That's you. Garen, and... Tom Krabaker. Okay, Tom, and 11 o'clock is the Buck Rogers cereal. And in, 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 uh, somewhere in the interim, we have two door prizes. After Ed's presentation, we have an audio book of the Three Planeteers, an Edmund Hamilton story that appeared in Startling. Uh, it was kind of the impetus for them, uh, uh, for the thrilling group hiring Hamilton to write the Captain Future stories. You know, it's Three Musketeers in Outer Space. Uh, and then after the uh, Weird Menace panel, we have an audio book of Terror Tales. Uh, these again are were donated to us by Radio Archives of Washington State. Uh, we'll have a couple, uh, one more tomorrow afternoon, and a couple more on Saturday. So, you want to start us off, uh, Ed? Yeah, we um, we originally chose this year uh, to celebrate the uh, Diamond Jubilee of what's considered the Golden Age of Science Fiction. Now, that designation. Uh, was affixed to 1939 by Alva Rogers, who wrote a terrific book called A Requiem for Astounding, which was a history of the magazine Astounding Stories, later known as Astounding Science Fiction, and even later known as Analog. Um, in the mid-30s, science fiction was primarily represented in the pulp by three magazines. The early years had been, as, as we discussed last night, uh, some of the Muncie magazines had featured the scientific romances, but science fiction by the mid-30s was represented by Amazing Stories, which was owned by a company called Tech Publications, and in 1938 was purchased by Zip Davis. Then it was represented by Thrilling Wonder Stories, which was one of Ned Pine's thrilling group publications. That was the old Wonder Stories, Gerns Bernsback's Wonder Stories, which had been purchased by Standard. 
And of course, the final one was Street and Smith's Astounding. So the genre was kind of poking along, but suddenly for, for reasons that I don't think are still clear, or at least they're not easily summarized, there was a huge breakout in 1939 of science fiction titles. There was Famous Fantastic Mysteries, which we discussed last night. There was Planet Stories. There was Science Fiction, which was a Columbia pulp edited by Charles Hornig, who was a fan who uh, edited Gernsback's Wonder Stories at the age of 17. Then when Gernsback sold that pulp to the Thrilling Group, Hornig, uh, after a little while, went to work for the Columbia Pulse, and he edited Science Fiction, which was later edited by Doc Lowndes, Robert A. W. Lowndes. There was Planet Stories, which was Fiction House's entry in the sweepstakes. And there was Startling Stories, which we'll be talk talking about later, which is a companion to Thrilling Wonder. But And Future, too. And Future, future, future right, yeah. Future Fiction, which later became Future Science Fiction. But the, the king of the, in terms of quality and in terms of the maturity of the science fiction genre, once they got away from bug-eyed monsters and uh, space opera, was astounding under the editorship of John W. Campbell, who was com very much committed to melding uh, a harder-based science fiction with good, solid storytelling and kind of growing the genre out of the, uh, the space opera uh, settings, or in the other direction, Gernsback's dry, kind of stuffy, tech technologically oriented early science fiction. So, Alvar Rogers, in his book Requiem for Astounding, actually pinpointed the July 1939 issue as beginning science fiction's golden age. We are not going to be that restrictive this year. I mean, Astounding, first of all, Astounding 1939 was a fantastic year, and you find the first appearances in that magazine of Theodore Sturgeon, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, who had previously sold one story to Amazing, but he appeared in Astounding for the first time in July 1939, A.E. Van Vogt. So there were a lot of the guys who became the giants of science fiction got their start during 1939, but it was really kind of a general thing. It was in the pop culture zeitgeist that this was the year that science fiction was, was breaking out. So that's why we have selected our programs this year, most of them, to represent different facets of that, of that boom that began in 1939. Oh boy. What about Astounding, Barry? You, uh, uh, that's one of your major interests. This thing work? Oh, that's dead. You have to give me that. Okay. That's not doing anything. Hold it close. I do wish I would have... Oh, hang on. No, wait, wait, wait. I do wish that I had at least five minutes to do some notes, that's for sure. I can only speak for one writer, and that's Robert A. Heinlein, who is probably my all-time favorite science fiction writer. And he evolved a lot over the years. I just got finished reading the second half of William Patterson's biography of it. And a fascinating book. And the first part of it is really talks about when he had his first story published. I think it was Life I think it was Lifeline. Yeah. Lifeline. And I don't know how many know this story, supposedly. Nobody actually knows this true or not, but Heinlein mentioned it twice in different books that there was a contest, and I believe it was in Thrilling Wonder, for uh, a contest for somebody that never published before science fiction. And I don't remember how much it was worth. I don't remember. Do you remember how much the, uh, it was like $50 or something for the prize? 
I don't know. It wasn't a lot. It wasn't a lot. Well, after Heinlein finished Lifeline, he thought, you know, this is pretty darn good. Why should I get $50 for it or 25 or whatever it was? I'll send it to the best magazine in the field, in his opinion. And that was astounding. And it was accepted. And I, like I said, I had no time to take notes. So I'm kind of a fish out of water in a certain sense because I can't prove any of these things. I'm not sure how many stories Heinlein had in 1939 in Astounding. I do know that when he hit his stride, he was using at least two different names, Anson McDonald, and they're all one amusing anecdote. It might not have been in 39, it might have been in 1940. One writer wrote in and said to the feedback section of Astounding, and he said, you know, I really don't like those stories by Robert Heinlein, but that Anson McDonald guy, he's really good. You gotta keep him, <laughs> which I think is pretty amusing. I don't think he used any other pen name in Astounding other than Anson McDonald. He had several, but that, I think Anson McDonald was the, pro I know there's at least a few issues that had stories by both Heinlein and under Anson McDonald. And he, I personally think he really, by himself, was more responsible than probably any other science fiction writer. And it all began in 1939, and he drug He's the one that first had stories published in the Slicks. He's the first one that had stories published in the Saturday Evening Post. And so I think 1939 was a pivotal year for science fiction for no other reason than that. I'm also a big fan of planet stories. My own personal opinion is the first year of planet, the stories weren't all that wonderful, but it really did become quite <coughs> unlike any other magazine. If you get only like two magazines for two different reasons, I'd pick Planet for one and Astounding for the other. Because the Planet stories were just a whole lot of fun and Astounding really made you think. And I wish I could think of something else to say. Let me make one other point <laughs> that, I, that I think is important when, when we're considering this particular year and the influence it had on science fiction. Again, it's a difficult thing to pinpoint because there are events that happened in 1938, 1939, 1940. But what you did see around this time, you began to see the entry into the field of people who had started out as fans. If you'll remember last night, we were talking about famous fantastic mysteries. I mentioned in passing that Hugo Gernsback had inadvertently created science fiction fandom by printing the addresses of letter writers who then got together and created what we know as science fiction fandom. Well, by 1939, some of those guys who were just teenagers when the Gernsback books were coming out in the late 20s and early 30s, were now growing and they were trying to get into the field. So you start to see both in the letter columns and, and also the guys who are kicking around, the young guys like Frederick Pohl, for example, uh, to take one example, who were, who were ambitious. At this point, they began submitting stories. Now, very few of them broke into print in 1939, but by 1940, uh, Pohl was already editing uh, at yeah, the Paul, popular Paul, publication. Paul popular went publication. to popular, uh, I think it was November 39, and uh, proposed uh, a couple of science fiction magazines to uh, uh, Rogers Terrell, and sent him to Harry Steger, they hired him, and uh, gave him a budget, I think it was about $500 for the one magazine. For everything. 700, and that was everything, cover, cover arts, art, printing, stories, printing, everything, and then uh, a little bit more for super, uh, it was astonishing stories and super science stories. That was going to be a little longer than the other one, so Steve gave him $100 or $200 more, 
And that was all in, at the tail end of 39. And you also remember that you had uh, uh, Margulies announcing at the 1939 World Science Fiction Convention, first World Science Fiction Convention, uh, that they had come up with a new magazine, all because of the fans at the convention, Captain Future. So that, that was in, in the works there too. We also, we did forget, we're also celebrating fantastic fiction. A couple of magazines came out that year in that field, Strange Stories, which was from the Thrilling Group, which was, uh, you know, it was a, Kind of like weird tales, but it had a lot of stories packed into an issue, short stories. So-so. There's a couple in there that are pretty good, but uh, not, not too many. Just had a uh, bunch of uh, uh, guys submitting first draft stories to, to the magazine to sell something. Lasted, what, 12, 13 issues? But you do have Unknown, which was uh, John Campbell's baby. Uh, the uh, probably the best fantasy magazine of all time that appeared in 1939. And there you have L. Ron Hubbard coming into play, as well as in Astounding. Fritz Leiber, I think, started yeah, the Fritz Fofford and the Grey Mauser series no, that year as well. Huh? I think that was 1939. Yeah, it was, definitely. It's in the Pulpster. That's why I just read it. <laughs> so, it, like Ed said, it was a real watershed year. Yeah, we also forgot Fantastic Adventures, which was launched yeah. in 1939 That's by right. Zip Davis as a companion to Amazing Stories. And while it wasn't devoted exclusively to science fiction, it had a lot of science fiction stories in it, and, and perhaps more importantly, unlike Amazing, Fantastic Adventures injected a note of whimsy into a number of their stories, like Robert Block's Lefty Feep series. So all of that had an influence. So again, it's hard to point, as Albert Rogers did, to any one issue of any one magazine and say, well, this and this alone began the golden age of science fiction. No, it's the output of the entire year and of the people who got into the field during that year that really created the golden age and, and really set it off like a juggernaut. I, I want to comment about when you were mentioning Frederick Pohl, and Ed can correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed to me that he was only getting paid $15 a week. Oh, he wasn't getting paid much at all. No, no very little. But there was no rule that he couldn't write stories for the magazine, so that's what he started to do. I don't know if he wrote under his own name uh, or under that pen name of uh, S.D. Yeah, well, he had a pen name. Uh, I can't remember it. Gossaman or something like no, that, I think. No, no. He had a couple, and what he also did An was... An Irish name. He, he got oh, some of his yeah, fan McCray. friends, James members of the yeah. Futurian Club yeah. in New York. A lot of them sold their first fiction under, uh, yeah. and in fact, a lot of them would collaborate. There might be two or three of them collaborate on one story that was Corn, ran Corn under. Bluff, uh, Cyril Cornbluth, uh, right? Oh, who else? Paul yeah. Paul. Uh, Hannes Bach was writing. Uh, Jack Darrell, uh, not Jack Darrell. Um, Help us out. Richard Wilson. Yep, yep, that's another one. Yeah, come but on, we got a lot, lot we have of, a lot of knowledgeable people yeah. out there. Help we us did, out. We, We're we forgot one other magazine was Dynamic Science Stories, which was right. from the yeah, company right. that would become Marvel Comics. Uh, 38 was Marvel Science Stories, which was which uh, presaged the 
boom year of 39, and uh, Martin Goodman uh, liked to try out new magazines. He'd see a trend happening and uh, uh, jump on board and put out a, an issue or two and make a little bit of money and then, then drop it like a uh, hot potato, hot potato and then, then move on. He, he did start Dynamic Science uh, in 39. I think it lasted, I think it was three issues. One man, two, I think. Two, two or, actually yeah, two. two. One had a Saunders cover, and the first had a Paul. Who's Saunders? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, actually, the second, the Saunders covers always looked to me like something that, that was going to be used on a weird menace, and they stuck it on there. And then the first cover, I once did an article years ago for a fanzine that said, if you can't afford to collect long runs, try Dynamic. It was only two issues. <laughs> I have both of them. And I, the Paul cover is really good. Although it looks like the Paul cover actually looks like it should be in an amazing from about 1930 or 31 or maybe 29, but still nice. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. Can we open up to questions or comments oh, about any of the we uh, magazines we've briefly mentioned? <laughs> uh, Ray. Can you do what the circulation was of some of these magazines? Oh, my. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. <laughs> That's always a tough question, but it's, it's yeah. safe to say that um, the science fiction magazines did not have anywhere near the circulation that a, a detective title or a uh, um, you know a Western title or a love title had. But what the science fiction magazines did have, which the publishers valued almost as much as a large circulation, they had a steady circulation. They were not subject to whims or passing fancies. When science fiction fans got involved in the fiction, they were real collectors, they bought every issue, they commented on every issue, which is why the letter columns of these science fiction pulps are so vibrant, and almost as much fun as reading the stories, yeah. as reading the letter columns, and seeing the names of all these fans who later became pros themselves. So even though, uh, my guess would be that something like Astounding, and Will Murray would know this because he's done more research in the street and Smith, but I seem to recall a conversation in which he said the circulation of Astounding during this general period was somewhere between like 60 and 75,000 copies an issue, which is, you know, successful. It's not huge. It's not like 300,000 that the shadow was doing every two weeks. But again, the fact that they had a very consistent um, base and that, you know, there are some pulps where the covers, an individual cover could send a circulation soaring and then the next issue with a different cover, you know, it could drop back down. Science fiction, once they got to a certain level, they maintain that level, and publishers value that because it's, it helps, for, among other things, when you're selling advertising, mm -hmm. to have a really steady circulation, and it helps the advertisers target the advertising and, to a specific uh, group. And, and Campbell was basically told, as long as your magazine makes a profit, we'll keep publishing it, and, and 49 comes along, and Street and Smith is dropping all, of, all their pulps. Now, by then, Astounding was a digest, but... It kept going, yeah. and it's still going. It's analog science fiction. It's not uh, published by the successors of Street and Smith, Connie Ness, Advanced Publishers, but another company, but it's still alive today. Uh, when, when it started, what, 30? 1930. 30. 30. So it's, it's oh, 84 years old. 
So it, it kept going after Street and Smith said, well, the popes are done. So it continued to make a profit as long as Campbell was alive. Eventually they did sell it, but so it, it was paying the bills, so to speak. Other questions I or comments? Comment. I think I saw once that in the 30s or the 40s, it was, this shocked me, it was actually over 100,000. Now, now it's astounding. It's yeah. to 100,000. Actually amazing, but was much, much bigger, which you would not get the impression of because people usually look down their nose and amazing <laughs> yeah. under Ray Palmer yeah. with all his. Yeah, I, I think you're right about astound, astounding. Uh, uh, I think it was into the 40s when it was passed, passing over 100. It might have even gone up to 200,000. But I just uh, want to say that uh, if people are really interested in this era and they really, I mean, this, since I was seventh or eighth grade, I, I stumbled into a requiem for astounding at my county library. And it has been my Bible yeah. for oh, collecting yeah. Oh, yeah. 44 years or so now. Yeah. And I still have my original copy yeah. I bought from Howard Moore years ago, and I hardly it is it is a very it is it's it's a, it's a fan book. He he loved astounding, and it, it's 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 a fan writing about a favorite magazine. It's very well written. But the other uh, one is the Arthur C. Clarke book, Astounding Days, which nobody has mentioned, and it's a wonderful book too. Astounding, directly yeah. for astounding, I understand is about to be republished by uh, some small publisher. So you mm -hmm. definitely want to be looking for that one. I got to agree with that for Requiem for Astounding because when that, do you know when it, the year it first came out? 64. Wow, okay. So I was, I was buying and reading nothing but science fiction, but I probably bought that book maybe in 1966 or 67. And there again, it almost became my guide to which issues I was wanting to look for. Because you go, oh, that sounds really good. And like I said, it, maybe some people would think it's overly sentimental, but that's the point, I think. Because if you're not sentimental about these things, you don't collect them. And you don't love them as much as many of us, or all of us do. We may not all love the same magazine or the same writers, but I think that love is shared. Another Why excellent I... resource is uh, Mike Ashley's The Time Machines, which was oh. published by uh, <clears throat> Liverpool University, and I think Chicago University did it over here. Uh, that it, It's based upon his earlier history of the science fiction magazines, which is a combination history and anthology series. I think there were three books in that. Time Machines is an excellent resource oh, yeah. on, on this area. It, 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 it does start earlier than 39, but he does cover 39 in, in very heavy detail. We only have a couple of minutes before Ed is on. Thank, Thank goodness. God. Thank God. Any, uh, one more comment or question? Uh, yeah. Um, a lot of film critics think of 39 as a golden year for film. Do you think there's any is that coincidence, or is there any correlation? Did every can they, everybody hear that question? Yeah, well. Michael was saying that 1939 is considered a boom year for film as well. <clears throat> and is, do you think that there's any correlation with the boom in science fiction? I, I don't think there's a specific correlation. However, there are a lot of people, a lot smarter than me, 
who, who have come to believe, as I have come to believe, that the Depression years in general saw a terrific flowering of creativity in American popular culture, mostly as a desire to escape from the pressures of the time, and that it, 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 the, the spirit of, of uh, escapism, of creating escapist entertainment, roused the genius in a lot of creative people in various forms of media and the arts during the 30s. As it turns out, in terms of science fiction specifically, it really wasn't a genre in film in the 30s. There were isolated science fiction films, there were horror films with science fictional elements, but uh, one of the reasons that we chose Buck Rogers was A, he's based on a pulp character, B, the serial was released in 1939, and C, it had a lot of the same elements that were appearing in science fiction magazines in the stand. So even though it is not a major motion picture, it's hardly the Citizen Kane of science fiction movies, it certainly represents yeah. a lot of what we're talking about and, and celebrating from this year. I also, I've read a lot of books about the Depression era, and although the unemployment rate was still pretty high in 1939, I always got a sense from the books I've read about the time period that there was an optimism by 1939 that there wasn't in 1934 or 1935, uh, say. And I do believe that that might have played a part in the, the films of 1939 and also the science fiction boom of 1939. We did forget one important event was the 1939 New York World's Fair. Was yes, in 1939, and they so. had very their world so. of the future. So, which coincided with the probably, first world science fiction convention. In that the probably same city. tied in. Oh, and there's a hand back there. Last comment or question. Yeah, it was also a different media, but you had the uh, War of the Worlds uh, broadcast in 39. There, all right. Yeah. No, actually, it's 38. Oh, 38. I'm sorry. All right. I got off my year too. But close enough. It was close. It was October. They were still mad at Orson Welles by 1939. They were, oh, yeah. I'm right. sure of that. All right. Well, Garen Roberts, thank you. <laughs> okay. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.